DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In Heaven and Faith, the wonderful retreat that was given not only to her sister, but ultimately to the rest of us by Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. A Carmelite mystic from Dijon who died in 1906, lived to the age of 26, and in the last months of her life, wrote down theological reflections that she believed would help people grow in prayer. She was very, very concerned that Catholics enter deep into the mystery of God, have a transforming encounter with Christ. She believed that this was something that could happen to every Catholic that opened up their heart, and she believed this for her sister. And so in order to help her sister experience this life-changing grace, to help her sister live deep in the depths of God, she wrote this retreat. She uh, spent a few days in silence in the infirmary and wrote a reflection over 10 days. Each day has two reflections, a first prayer and a second prayer. And these prayers would be she would envision them being prayed by her sister, probably the first prayer in the morning and the second prayer in the evening. And you would hear the reflection or you would read the reflection. And then you would spend some time in silence just mulling it over. Anthony, one of the things that can help us appreciate the true depth of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity is to look at those who have been touched by her work. And one of the very most prominent persons is Blessed John Paul II. He was very touched and influenced by her as well, wasn't he? He was. He, he said he was when he beatified her in 1984. He, he uh, identified her as one of the most influential mystics in his own spiritual life. You know, when he was in, in a living rosary group in Krakow during the war, he was very influenced by the great Carmelite mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. So much so that before he started studying as a diocesan priest, he actually looked into becoming a Carmelite. But the Carmelites believed that he had a, a vocation as a priest in the diocesan clergy. And, and I think it was during that time when he was discerning the Carmelites and looking into that, that he must come across or begin to read the writings of Elizabeth of the Trinity, which by that time had already spread all around the world and uh, were being read by people of prayer in monastic communities, in convents. 
and in seminaries literally all over the world had been translated. So he must have been exposed to her at that stage of his life, and it was an exposure to a, a, a prayerful vision of the scriptures and the teachings of the church that led him into the depths. I think he carried that experience with him um, uh, into his ordination as a priest and later bishop, so that when he was named Pope, it was only five years into his pontificate that he came to France and had uh, uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity beatified. Mm, wow. Well, should we begin? Okay. Father, I will that where I am, they also whom you have given me may be with me, in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Such is Christ's last wish, his supreme prayer before returning to his Father. He wills that where he is we should be also, not only for eternity, but already in time which is eternity begun and still in progress. It is important then to know where we must live with him in order to realize his divine dream. The place where the Son of God is hidden is the bosom of the Father, or the divine essence, invisible to every mortal eye, unattainable by every human intellect. As Isaiah said, Truly you are a hidden God, and yet, his will is that we should be established in him, that we should live where he lives, in the unity of love, that we should be, so to speak, his own shadow. By baptism, says St. Paul, we have been united to Jesus Christ. And again, God seated us together in heaven in Christ Jesus, that he might show in the ages to come the riches of his grace. And further on, you are no longer guests or strangers, but you belong to the city of saints and the house of God. The Trinity, this is our dwelling, our home, the Father's house that we must never leave. The Master said one day, the slave does not remain with the household forever, but the son remains there forever. So, in this first uh, reflection, did you notice how scripturally rich it was? Yeah, she just seems to have such a command of scripture. Is that usual for her day? I mean, we're talking the early 1900s. Well, um, what is interesting is that the church called for a renewal of scholarship and study around the time that she entered religious life, 1900. We're at a period of church history where a coal biblique in Jerusalem is founded and the magisterium of the church is realizing that uh, Catholics are not as scripturally literate as they should be. But believe it or not, even though she has this terrific command of the scriptures, which many scripture scholars marvel at, she seems to know the text so inside and out and their theological significance, but she did not have a Bible. What she had was a little book that listed 
individual Bible verses to be memorized. And the Bible verses were not in the context of the whole uh, letter from St. Paul or a gospel or even Old Testament book that they came from. They were just kind of listed in this atomized fashion for memorization purposes. And somehow, uh, and I believe it's through her prayerfulness, her contemplation, she was able to ponder these scriptures, not just memorize them, but ponder them in a way that opened her up to see their deep meanings. And, and that's why when we read her texts, uh, you'll see one scripture passage followed by another, followed by another. It's like a string of pearls she's put together to help us enter deep uh, into God's word and experience the Lord. I suppose there would be some out there that would say, well, isn't that terrible? They denied them access to the Bible. But that's not exactly, that, that would be placing our mindset into what was actually occurring then. Yeah, well, there was fear that um, approaching the scriptures without a proper theological preparation could cause people to misunderstand their faith, misappropriate scripture passages. It was kind of a fear that began around the time of the Council of Trent when Protestants were developing vernacular translations of the scriptures. Catholics were wary of this because they, they saw some of the fruit of some of the reformers wasn't to a deeper unity of the church, but but actually to contention and disunity. And so the church spent a couple centuries, a few centuries, trying to find, ponder, you know, what was causing this contention. And around the time of Elizabeth of the Trinity, the magisterium is beginning to understand that it's not the scripture passages themselves or the vernacular translations themselves that is causing the problem. It is a lack of a theological formation that has causes disunity in the church. When we do not understand our faith in a pure way, the fruit of the lack of purity with which we cling to our faith can be the seeds of disunity. And that's what they began to see at the turn of the century. And so access to the scriptures begins to open up more and more for um, mystics like uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity, so that by the Second Vatican Council, the church advocates that every member of the faithful ought to be reading the scriptures. The scriptures ought to be part of their prayer life, of feeding them spiritually, that, that you know, the good translations need to be made so that the faithful have access to those so that their spiritual life can grow and take off. Um, one thing that was misunderstood, and a lot of people look back, you're right, there's a certain chronological snobbery we, we can exercise when reflecting at decisions that we don't agree with now. We, we assume we know so much better, and we make other assumptions. We, we judge our forefathers pretty harshly. One thing that is the truth, even in monasteries and convents, where uh, the full access to the scriptures in terms of a Bible wasn't available, they were praying the scriptures every day. Mm -hmm. Their access to the, the scriptures was in the normal, the normative place that the scriptures should be encountered. And that is 
the scriptures, the word of God should normally be encountered, experienced, read, studied, pondered, meditated on during the liturgy. And, mm. and so they would pray uh, the liturgy of the hours. They would spend hours together every day praying all the psalms periodically throughout the day. They would have daily mass. The scriptures would be proclaimed at, at the daily mass. During their meals, the scriptures would be read. All these different ways they were exposed to scriptures. It's not that they didn't have the scriptures at all, but they just didn't have the whole book available to them. And again, it's what I was explaining before. Uh, there was concern about how to help people read the scriptures but have the purity of faith they needed to be able to benefit from them. And uh, Vatican II kind of said, provide good translations and proper catechesis and the Bible will help uh, the faithful enter deep into the mystery of their faith. And that, since Dave Verabum, that's been the approach of the church. Well, it really is uh, that Lexio Divina. It, it, and you can tell she's done that. She's just pondered and pondered the word. The importance of this cannot be overstated. She wants us to know the heart of Jesus. Prayer, Christian prayer, is about an interpersonal communion of friendship, a sharing of hearts, one with the other. And she wants us to have that kind of sharing of hearts with Jesus. So to open that up, to get it started, she reveals to us the deepest, most supreme desire in the heart of Jesus. What does Jesus yearn for? If you want to have a friendship with someone, you need to know what motivates them, what they yearn for, what it is that is important to them in their life. Jesus, the desires of his heart are revealed to us in the scriptures. And in particular, in the Gospel of John, in the prayer that Jesus offers to the Father the night before he dies, he reveals to us the deepest desires of his heart, the things that he wants most of all. And this line summarizes it. Father, I will that where I am, they also whom you have given me may be with me, in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus' desire for, is for us to be with him in communion. This is what he aches for in his heart. It's what he prays for. A lot of people, when they approach prayer, they approach it as some kind of cerebral exercise where you say the right pious formula so that God will do his part or something like that. Prayer is not a nice, neat, intellectual game where we use the right words. It's, prayer is about expressing the deep desires of our heart. This is what Jesus was doing the night before he died. This is why Elizabeth calls this Jesus's last wish, his supreme prayer. This is what Jesus most wants. And out of that deep desire, he utters this prayer to the Father. Elizabeth wants us to experience that. She wants us to know that in our hearts. She wants our hearts to be informed by this desire so that we share this desire with Jesus. If we do, our spiritual life, our prayer 
will explode. It will go in a certain direction. Our, our thoughts will be soaked with God because we realize if this is the desire of Jesus and Jesus is the Son of God, he's God's word, spoken by the Father, the word that has become flesh. If this is Jesus' desire for us, it ought to invoke in us a desire that responds to it. We need to be desirous of being in communion with Jesus. When Jesus discloses his heart, just like in a friendship, the heart is disclosed by a friend because um, the lover wants the beloved to share the desire he has with him. Jesus reveals this desire to us because uh, in the Holy Scriptures, because he wants his disciples to share this desire with him. Our faith life, our life of prayer, our life of devotion is not meant to be something that we just kind of do because it's our obligation to do. The reason why we, we invest in prayer, the reason why we fall on our knees and we ask God for his help, the whole reason why we have the sacraments in the church is God is trying to bring about a communion between himself and us. We who are poor, frail, limited creatures, he yearns for us to live with him. The latter part of this reflection about the household of the Father, that this is our proper dwelling place. The Trinity. This is our dwelling, our home, the Father's house that we must never leave. The Master said one day, The slave does not remain with the household forever, but the son remains there forever. Elizabeth has tapped into a a beautiful truth about the human person in this very first prayer. And that is, uh, we're made for something more than this world. I think it's a huge mistake that people make in their lives where they think that if they just have the right material stuff, they're going to get have everything they need in life. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people who've acquired material wealth beyond what they ever imagined they would and realized in the midst of all their achievements and all the things they have attained that they're still empty, that they're made for something else. Elizabeth is indicating this. We're made to dwell in union with God. We're made to dwell in God, and God wants to dwell in us. The wisdom that she has gotten from St. John in terms of Jesus' heart, what's in there in terms of a desire for communion, is joined together with St. Paul's wisdom in terms of baptism. What allows us to realize Jesus' desire in our life is that we've been baptized, immersed into his death and into his life so that we are completely united with Jesus by faith. When we live in the unity of that faith, we find our home in God. We discover the place where we really belong. So coming back to the whole idea of material things ultimately are not going to give me the peace I need. The peace I need, the peace I was made Uh, to enjoy uh, is found only by faith in Jesus Christ because only Christ, by being immersed in his mystery, by baptism and faith, he is the only way 
the only one who can lead me into the bosom of the Trinity, into the, into the heart of the Father. And it's living in the heart of the Father that my, my heart finds rest, that I realize the fullness of my humanity, that the joy that God created for me uh, becomes mine. Elizabeth wants this for her sister. Now, just a, a word about this since we're on the first reflection. Uh, her sister, Margaret, her nickname was Geet. Uh, Margaret is a mother at this stage of the game of two very young daughters. Um, the the oldest daughter, uh, Elizabeth, will eventually become a religious and enter the same Carmelite monastery as her aunt, uh, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. This family will, in fact, produce many vocations to to the priesthood and to religious life. The The secret, the reason why the children, including her eldest, Elizabeth, uh, Margaret's eldest, Elizabeth, were so generous with God was because the mom made prayer a priority in her household. She allowed herself to learn from her sister, Elizabeth of the Trinity, how to really pray. What's interesting with the Blessed Elizabeth Blessed Elizabeth doesn't view uh, the busyness of being a, a young mother as some. Uh, she she just doesn't see that as a distraction or something that interrupts deep contemplative, even mystical prayer. She see she believes that her sister Margaret, with the young children, just beginning her family, that Margaret Geet can become a great mystic, go into the depths of contemplative prayer uh, by realizing what Jesus is offering her. And so, so she makes the heart of Jesus, she lays it open for her sister on this very first day of the retreat. She's saying to her sister, you can realize in your life right here and right now what Jesus most desires for you. You don't have to run away from it. It won't be despite it. It's in the midst of this if you make prayer your priority. What allows us to make this application or helps us enter into this theological vision of prayer as a priority right here, right now in my life circumstance. Prayer is a priority that opens me up to the heart of Jesus, that leads me into the heart of God. He wills that where he is, we should be also, not only for eternity, but already in time which is eternity begun and still in progress. It is important then to know where we must live with him in order to realize his divine dream. The place where the Son of God is hidden is the bosom of the Father, or the divine essence, invisible to every mortal eye, unattainable by every human intellect. Is this curious reflection on time that she gives right in the middle of this. She says that time is eternity begun and still in progress. A lot of people want to put off the spiritual life, uh, you know, something you do before you die or something you do when all the circumstances are right and your life is together and there's kind of a little bit of uh, order now in my household. I don't have the young kids running around anymore. Uh, uh, finally entering into retirement, now I can begin to pray. Well, if you're in retirement and you're beginning to pray, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But Elizabeth mm -hmm. says, you don't have to wait for that time. You don't have to wait for the end of your life. You don't have to wait. If you wait 
to put it off until everything's all the planets are aligned or whatever. You'll be putting it off the whole time. You'll never get to enjoy it. Jesus expresses this wish right here, right now in our lives. It's something we can experience the bosom of the Father. Uh, the Trinity is the place of love, is our true home. We can realize the desires in the heart of Jesus for ourselves right here, right now, if we make prayer a priority. I, as a lay person uh, and a dad, uh, I have always found great consolation in this. Uh, it helps focuses, focus me, it keeps me evaluating what's my priorities when I remember that my spiritual life, my union with God, isn't something that happens uh, at the end of my life or, or after this life. Union with God, heaven, is something to be enjoyed right now. And so the, the retreat is called Heaven and Faith. These 10 days of reflection uh, have been called, got received the name Heaven and Faith by scholars because the message is you can begin to enjoy the life of heaven right now in this world, in your daily life, if you choose to live it by faith. We're all called to be saints, aren't we? Oh, this is absolutely true. You know, there there was a, a time when uh, a number of scholars kind of thought there were two tiers of holiness. There were there was the extraordinary tier for the great kind of super athlete uh, contemplatives who did all kinds of ascetic feats, and then there was the second tier of holiness for the rest of us poor schmoes who, if we made it to Mass and lived a good moral life, just might make it into purgatory. That really isn't part of the tradition of the Church. Uh, there is only one holiness, and it's the holiness of God. And we're all called to share that same holiness. And we all have access to that holiness by faith. And, and when we make prayer a priority, when we allow prayer to be the primary uh, center of our lives so that uh, we can receive the, the grace that God wants to give us through that. We will grow in holiness no matter our vocation, no matter our, our state in life, our occupation. Uh, uh, we will all grow in the same holiness. The pathway to union is the same. We all experience it differently. Some people have a greater or lesser gift of prayer. We all are able to pray. The faith all allows us to access the same mystery. We're all called to the same holiness. So there is a universal call to holiness. Each of us realizes it in our lives in different ways, according to the plan of God. But in doing that, God, who's generous to all of us, really calls us to the same place. We're all called to live with in his bosom, to live in our heavenly homeland, to live in the heart of the Father, to live in the innermost sanctuary of the Trinity. The Trinity wants to live in the hearts of all the faithful, every heart that says yes to him. Beautiful. Anthony, I can't wait to our next visit. Okay. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.